Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds and our kickoff of our, actually our second iteration of the Chad Behavioral Health Mini Fellowship Series. So um, I saw earlier welcoming our friends from Manchester, Nashua, Concord, Keene, I think even Bennington on various uh, VTELs across the the health system. We um, we do these every year, as you know, and the, the goal is to create a community of practice across CHAD where we can co-manage common conditions in pediatrics that are frequent and important and make sure that we all have at least the starting point of a basic understanding of the state of the evidence and state of um, best practice. And then with e-consults and other tools can implement that process. So we're kicking that off and we'll be going through um, psychiatry, psychology, and behavioral health over the next six months. So uh, it is the 20th of November. It, we will not gather next week and we wish you everyone uh, a very happy and healthy Thanksgiving holiday. I um, have to look back a little bit to last week as well and that you might have seen on the slides running before I missed an important opportunity to um, note and thank all of our uh, advanced practice nurses who were celebrating Nurse Practitioner Week last week, and um, hopefully we enjoyed that on Friday. But I, yes, I see Anne, and you're going to clap. You can start the clapping. <laughs> Let me see if there are others in the room as well of our nurse practitioners. It's a huge cohort, so. And we also celebrated on uh, Monday evening uh, a, a, a retirement, a graduation, I think of it as uh, Katie Driscoll, who had been in our <laughs> intensive care nursery for at least 35 years, but also told stories about uh, being a nurse in the old inpatient unit in PICU, both in the old hospital and, and here, uh, retired after a, a long and dedicated career. So much good going on. Um, but to get to our uh, Grand Rounds and our Behavioral Health Mini Fellowship. We're gonna. I'm really pleased to welcome uh, someone who's. I, I thought you've been to this podium, but not in a Grand Rounds setting. Susan Pullen. Susan is a native of Orono, Maine, and received her undergraduate degree from Tufts University, as well as her master's in social work at Boston University, where she uh, started her career in in um, Boston City Hospital as a hospital social worker in the pediatric HIV program. She has had various roles uh, throughout the region as a social worker and a therapist at West Central and in Newburyport, Massachusetts. She had an extended period of time here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and the Family and Child Trauma Center, FACT, as a clinical coordinator in the 90s. Uh, was in private practice and then took a turn as a as a teacher at the Plainfield School for nine years, actually, in top sixth graders before we were able to, I don't know how, recruit her back. And in the last five years has been a mainstay in general pediatrics uh, here on the sixth floor as the embedded behavioral health clinician. So she is going to walk us through that alphabet soup that is so important for us to know about. Susan, welcome. Yeah. You're on. Yes. You should be on. Yes. Message her. Well, good morning. Today we'll be talking about evidence-based therapies to treat and improve mental health. We'll be learning about the applications of these practices through case discussion. I hope this will be helpful as we think about patient care from the perspectives of our diverse roles in various services in CHAD. Yes, it is good that we are all in it together, and we really are. We are all impacted by mental health challenges at some point in time. Ourselves, our families, our friends, and of course, our patients. My role as a BHC is to support the mental health care of patients. I collaborate with the team, complete assessments, provide brief interventions, and short-term treatment, and coordinate with mental health providers in the community. Today we'll be talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral activation, exposure therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, among other evidence-based practices. As a BHC, I often draw upon several of these practices in work with patients. It's amazing to think about the power of human thought 
literally the driver, the collection of human experiences throughout time, for good and for bad. There are 7.7 .7 billion people living on the planet today. We're all thinking thoughts. Cognitive behavioral therapy is about working with thoughts to improve feelings and behaviors. What are cognitions? The mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and senses. Experiences can be things like memories, emotions. What's metacognition? The awareness and understanding of one's own thought process. The cognitive triangle helps us to really understand the connections between our thoughts, our behaviors, and our feelings. This model informs many behavioral approaches to improving mental health and well-being. It shows us that if we can change our thoughts, we might change our feelings, or if we change our behaviors, we might change our feelings. So let's start with a little exercise around CBT and automatic thoughts about public speaking, for example, doing grand rounds. <laughs> thought that a person doing grand rounds might be, if I don't nail this, I'll lose my credibility with the team. That is all or nothing thinking, and boy, if I think that thought, I'm feeling pretty anxious standing here in front of you right now. Or I might think the last time I did this, my slides were out of order. Here we go again. I'm really overgeneralizing, thinking that because it happened once, it could happen again, and I still feel really anxious. I'm going to fail. Wow, I'm really catastrophizing the situation. I'm exaggerating, and it still leads to a lot of anxiety for me. I can tell by the way she's not looking or looking at me that she's not interested. Wow, I must think I'm pretty good at mind reading. And that kind of mind reading makes me feel pretty anxious. Let's see if I can work with these thoughts about public speaking and uh, start heading in a different direction. Here's version two. So my original thought was, if I don't nail this, I'll lose my credibility with the team. Well, an alternate thought that might be more helpful for me today in this moment is, my team already knows me well and they support me. And when I think that, I feel more poised. The last time I did this, my slides were out of order. Here we go again. Well, actually, I can review my slides more carefully this time, and I'll feel reassured. I'm going to fail. I've done my best to prepare. I feel pretty confident. I can tell she's not interested by the way she's looking at me. Maybe she's got other things on her mind. Hmm, I feel a little bit more compassionate for myself and for her. So hopefully kind of running through some automatic thoughts about public speaking put us in a place where we can begin to see how working with thoughts can change the way we feel. So with all of these therapies that include cognitive behavioral strategies, among others, the behavioral health caregiving relationship is at the center of helping patients. And it's the use of the self to co-create, which is the foundation of mental health care. So this lens, this relationship, seeks to empower, of course, working with children, it's developmental. It instills hope. It's safe, respectful, and reflective. And a couple of things about, about these are um, when I think about instilling hope, I'm not talking about sort of like that pat, you know, sort of like, oh, you're going to get through this. I'm talking about the hope that comes from really being with a person and hearing their situation and listening for their strength and reflecting it back into the room. In terms of reflective practice, I'm thinking about how it's so important to be aware of our own judgments, our own biases. Um, our own prejudices, and, and to really reflect upon those honestly and do that work within ourselves. The work is hard, and sometimes those things definitely come up for us. Um, of course, since I'm an MSW and my training is in social work, 
I always think about my work with patients from a biopsychosocial perspective. Um, so, for example, um, I'm not just going to think about, oh, this kid's looking like he's getting a little bit depressed. Um, I'm going to be thinking, oh, that's right. About two months ago, that psoriasis really flared up. And it was really terrible. And, you, you know, it was really embarrassing for him because, you know, he's in the seventh grade. And going to middle school, there were some kids who were unkind. And, um, and so he became a little bit more depressed. And then he isolated himself more. And suddenly he's not really connecting with friends. And so thinking about how those loops all go together. A very important aspect for me to the caregiving relationship is the strength-based focus. And that is one of absolute belief that people have um, within themselves the knowledge of what they need to heal and to bring that into the room. Trauma-informed is not what's wrong with you, um, which, is, which is one of the um, sort of evolutions that we're undergoing in healthcare in general, but rather what happened to you. And understanding behavior, sometimes even behavior that's really hard to be with, in terms of adaptive and functional based upon what has happened to you. Of course, we can't be working with children unless we're family focused and thinking really compassionately about families and thinking about we're not supporting children unless we're supporting parents and families. And probably the primary hallmark of the behavioral health caregiving relationship is the focus on active listening listening before speaking. Um, we're going to be talking about some modalities by length of treatment. Um, the two that I do most frequently in my role as behavioral health clinician are brief interventions and short-term or brief therapy. So brief interventions could be anything from one to three meetings with a patient. It could be anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, the focus of a brief intervention is on understanding the concerns and motivations of the patient and family, the education around those, um, perhaps taking some time to build some cognitive behavioral strategies, come up with solutions through problem solving, and it may be eclectic. So you're hearing me talk about cognitive behavioral strategies, problem solving. Um, so it's, it's going to be really focused on solutions, but maybe drawing from a variety of evidence-based approaches to therapy. Short-term therapy has a similar um, solution-oriented focus. Um, looking at strengths, it has more opportunity to apply and learn some of these strategies, cognitive behavioral strategies, other kinds of strategies, mindfulness-based strategies, problem-solving, and it may be eclectic as well. Uh, when you look at the literature around, you know, the length of these sessions, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of looseness around this. So, so short-term, I've seen like 6 to 20 sessions. I've seen 6 to 24. Um, and, of course, since all behavioral health interventions are relationship-based, there is some aspect of judgment um, with the caregiver in terms of the length of treatment and, and also um, the engagement of the patient. Why do a brief intervention or short-term therapy, and why in a medical setting? Patients are more likely to talk about mental health in naturalistic settings, like primary care or schools versus seeking specialty mental health care. We have a shortage of mental health care providers. The need for mental health care in the pediatric population is significant. We all know this. We don't know when, if patients will return for care, so we have opportunity in that moment. Physical health, mental health, and social conditions are related and impact overall wellness or, conversely, illness. We might be the one person who can make a difference. And, in bold and caps, short-term evidence-based behavioral therapies are effective. What is the brief intervention? Typically, it involves some form of assessment. It could be using a normed rating scale and getting that data. Um, it could be taking a brief history. It could be reviewing the chart. Some form of assessment. What is, what is the primary concern? Um, and then it typically involves some kind of education around um, the primary identified concern. 
Then some kind of an intervention. This is part of um, su you know, supporting patients, working together with patients, um, and, and instilling hope, and a plan, which is typically a very immediate plan because this is a brief intervention. Follow-up. We cannot assume that it will happen, right? It might happen and it might not. So as we're doing the brief intervention, we've got that lens on, okay, this is today. What do we want to get done today? This may be it. And this is the future, potential future that we could be think about, thinking about going forward if it happens. So here's a brief intervention case example. We have a Caucasian middle school boy who presented with his mother. The complaint was insomnia, which started four to five months ago. And now he's coming into his parents' room nightly. The child presents as tired, mildly anxious on screening, not in the clinical significant, clinically significant range. He seems initially skeptical about the appointment, but motivated to get more sleep. And the mother presents as capable, concerned, and frustrated. She wants her son to stop coming into her bedroom every night. So I thought we could take a pause here. I know I haven't given you a lot of information at the outset, but um, I, I was thinking maybe you could connect with somebody sitting near you um, this morning and think about if you have any additional questions, what you think might be the focus of education, um, any potential immediate plan, or any other issues to address. Um, so, within the realm of these questions, why don't you just take a couple of minutes and talk with each other? <laughs> conversation, an additional question about this child. Yes, Jean. Did it seem like there was anything that triggered it when you first started coming in, waking up and coming into the room? Right, right. Great question. And I'm going to file that away. That's a really good question. Yes. Uh, yes, Susan. Okay. <laughs> and, um, like how, what is going on at home, at school, housing, family, uh, not in, you know, a bullet presentation, but from mom as well as him. 
Okay, great. Yeah, that was another important question. All right. Any thoughts about yes, yeah, Steve? They have a social media family social media device policy. Oh, the social media question. Okay, why are you asking that? Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, any guesses about a focus of education? I know we, we still are missing some information, but we might be able to make a guess. How is she reacting to this company? What's she doing when she comes in? The mom? Yeah. She's annoyed. Well, no, I'm going to ask the other you know, and kind of figure out what her, you know, is she's annoyed, but what is she doing? Is she just saying go back to the room? Or, you know? No, she's not. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Maybe some um, education around sleep hygiene and just kind of review what kind of practices they follow and maybe add to that. Okay. Great. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit more about, about the situation. So as it turns out... Um, this, this was the oldest of four children, returning to a second year at the same school, doing well academically in school, involved in different activities, loved to play soccer, um, grumpy at home, um, and mom has a busy job with quite a bit of responsibility and very frustrated um, because this kid, you know, she says, he just can't get himself organized. I'm always like dragging his sports bag all over the place. You know, it's, it's right by the door, and he walks out without it. And, you know, she's saying this in front of him. And, and um, you know, so we've had to, like, run home and pick up the bag. And, you know, then I'm late for work. And, you know, the kid's kind of sitting there like, you know. Um, so that was, that was one thing that was helpful information to learn. Um, the other thing was that they had a big house, and they had done some renovation in the house. And now his room was, like, out in the barn, practically. I mean, it was like way off site. He was in the house. But this was a huge change for him physically. And, um, and that was the thing that seemed to prompt the dis-ease that he was feeling falling asleep at night. And so when he would come into their room, he would stay in the room. There'd be grumble, grumble, grumble. The next morning, everybody would be annoyed. But this pattern had been going on for a couple of months. Um, so... He was so highly, and oh, they had done some really nice work around sleep hygiene, and um, they had also, um, uh, you know, done some nice work on thinking about how they could help sleep feel more comfortable for him. So um, motivational interviewing is typically used to address um, people who are trying to improve their health behaviors. And, and namely, substance use disorder, it's also really helpful with things like cutting, um, other kinds of health behaviors that pose significant risk. But it's just such a beautiful um, model of working with patients to identify their priorities and their concerns. And so when I'm doing a brief intervention, I've got an hour, I am going straight to what is your concern? What is the kid's concern? I want to sleep more. I'm exhausted. What is mom's concern? I want him out of my room. Okay, so, so how confident um, is the patient about his ability to change? And what tools does he need to feel more confident? Well, it soon became very clear that a lot of this was about, about his proximity to his parents in the house. And I'm sure developmentally, you know, he's in middle school, he's starting to realize, like, oh, I'm getting older, I I'm, 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 have to become more independent, and all these things are kind of intersecting for him. So... Um, what he seemed to need was his mother's understanding about the situation of what it's like for him to be kind of off, <laughs> off in, in the corner of the house. So as it turns out, there was a room right next to their bedroom that was a spare room that was being used essentially for nothing, the junk room. It was a little inconveniencing for mom because, you know, this is like where I can just go put my stuff and I don't want to worry about it. But um, she was willing to compromise with him. And we decided that for a period of time that the junk room was going to become his bedroom. So they got a blow-up bed. We talked about all the things that they could put in this room that would make it more comfortable for him. And um, I, we, there was a tablet that he was using for music, but that was getting a little bit distracting for him in terms of being able to settle down. So we got rid of the tablet. We got an alternate source for, for soft music. And I taught him some progressive guided meditation which involves having a beautiful green light at the top of your head and imagining it 
Just slowly roll down your body and relaxing your muscles as you're going along. And he was really good at being able to use these kinds of techniques. Um, and once he was in the spare bedroom, he was falling asleep really well. Um, and he was very happy about that. Um, we, we worked a little bit with his automatic anxious thoughts about his insomnia. So he would, you know, at the beginning when he was just working out this plan, he would, he would get in bed and he would think, oh, God, I'm never going to fall asleep. I'm going to be so tired again tomorrow. I'm going to feel terrible. This is just terrible. And he would have that urge to want to get up and go in his parents' bedroom, you know. And so we would talk about, well, what are some alternative thoughts that you could have, right? And so it would be like, oh, I'm resting. Oh, my pillow is so comfortable. Mom and dad are right next door. Um, you know, this kind of thinking. And, oh, I'm going to try my progressive relaxation again. And this was very effective for this kid who was very motivated and very capable. Um, so... I was lucky. There was a bonus. We got to have a follow-up appointment to check in on the progress. The plan was going great in terms of his insomnia. He was getting up. He was feeling bright-eyed for school, right? Mom was still kind of like, oh, I really don't want him in this little room right next to my bedroom, right? It's a little bit inconvenient for me. And um, there wasn't a lot about Dad yet at this point, but um, I did learn that Dad actually um, had ADHD. So one more little bit of information, right, for this family. And um, so mom was ready to, like, say, oh, I wanted to go back to his room, back to his room. And I said, what? I had already made the suggestion to refer for, for therapy. So I said, you know, things are going so well right now. He's getting sleep. You're not getting interrupted. Why don't you wait until he's established with his new therapist? Keep this plan, and then you can work on making progress in a more independent direction around, around where he's sleeping. And um, she was happy with that, and so was he. And um, we did do the ADHD screening in primary care, and it did turn out that he had ADHD primarily in attentive type. Um, and my, the bonus, if there were to be another bonus, would have been to refer the parents for parent management training. So parent management training is, is this great evidence-based work that cl clinicians can do with parents which is often used um, when kids are um, perhaps disruptive, um, sometimes when they're disorganized, um, when there's some rancor or tension in the parent-child relationship that has kind of gone into a negative direction. And um, so in the case of this family, <clears throat> I, would, I would recommend that it would help them to be able to clarify their expectations for their child, learn how to give clear directions, um, but especially in the bolded area, increased praise and positive attention for wanted behavior. That's the one thing that seems to, with this parent management training, turn a lot of things around for families. Focus on natural consequences to avoid power struggles. So, for example, instead of turning around and going back to the house to get the bag and be resentful and angry about it, keep going to school. You know, how are you going to solve that problem next time? Um, and then act ignoring, ignoring of low-level unwanted behavior. I have a short-term therapy case example. Um, this is an anxious female who presents to the PCP mid-fall of freshman year. Family had moved from a European country a couple of years earlier. Having anxiety and, pan and panic attacks, which started in the spring of eighth grade, when the teen feels anxious at school, she begins to feel nauseous and lightheaded. Her father picks his daughter up from school when she sends urgent texts, and she's missed half of all school days so far this year. So let's take another minute um, to think about this case. Any additional questions you have? Um, what might be the focus of treatment and education, or what else might be addressed? Thank <laughs> you. 
some additional questions related to this case that they'd like to share. Yes, Trish. We have lots of questions about um, the school's involvement at this point. She's missed half the day, so hopefully there's been a meeting for planning. Yes, that's a great question. Yes, and that, that does get addressed. Yes. Any other? Yes. Is there a trauma history of any sort? Um, Really important to know. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question to have. Yeah, any others? Right, I think I'll just move forward in the interest of time here. So um, there wasn't a trauma history. Um, so I think there had been a lot of significant change. The family had moved from Europe a couple years earlier. Mom had a very busy, demanding job. Dad also did, but his was working from home. Older brother was still living overseas and, you know, was old enough so that he would be there for the foreseeable future. Um, this is a young woman who was very smart and cared a lot about doing well in school and um, was fairly perfectionistic and um, um, had a lot of expectations for herself. Um, the other piece was that she had this lovely father who was extremely doting and concerned and um, he really would understand um, her panic sort of through a medical lens. And her panic was fairly significant. She would have nausea, she would have difficulty breathing, racing heart, sweating, you know, sometimes have to lie down, feeling faint. And this was very, very upsetting to him. And he really, you know, was a, had a lot of concerns that something was going on for her medically. And, um, and so then between his, his anxiety about that and her distress when it happened, they got into this pattern of she would send the text, he would go pick her up at school, and then, you know, this ball was rolling where she was missing a lot of school. Fortunately, they, they came in fairly early on in the school year, um, and even though it had been half the school days, it wasn't a, a real long span of time that school had been missed. So um, with patients who have panic, it can be very helpful to, to do a lot of education about like, what is going on in the body around anxiety, um, because this is something that many people in, in the general population don't know. And so um, they're not thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my emotional brain and my cognitive brain are not communicating and my adrenaline is flowing and my cortisol is, you know, like at epic levels. And so using something like this to explain it to patients and their family members can be very helpful and very reassuring. Um, so that was a big part of the initial focus. Um, lots of, of um, education about anxiety. Um, it was really important to address stigma in this case, and I find that especially with kids with high anxiety or panic, that they feel so much embarrassment and stigma about their anxiety. And so to normalize anxiety as a human experience 
and and it's almost like they're they're, they're afraid of their anxiety. It's kind of like this is happening, and so so sort of to 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 take the fear away from it a little bit, and and um and to sort of help them learn that hey, if I try to avoid this, it grows right, and so more of an acceptance that yes, this is happening. It's not comfortable. I don't like this. Um, this isn't going to last forever. I don't have a medical problem. I'm not dying. You know, sort of all of that kind of reassuring self-talk, which is in that cognitive behavioral realm. Also, in this case, um, there was a lot of importance around um, the role of working with the, the parent to help increase her resilience and support her independence. So um, explaining why, you know, if, if, if she sends you a text and, you know, you're, you're you know, running out to get her, you're reinforcing this pattern of school avoidance, and you're also reinforcing the idea that she needs help and that she cannot manage this and get through it. And so then that um, came to um, providing her with some skills um, to be able to relax. Um, so she engaged in a daily mindfulness practice. And the thing that is different about a mindfulness practice versus um, a relaxation or activity for fun is mindfulness is something that you practice every day. And so when I'm working with children, um, I often will say, well, you know, when you played that instrument, did you know how to play it right away? Or when you um, rode your bike or when you did that sport? And the idea that, that by doing daily breathing for mindfulness, you're gaining muscle memory. And so you're actually incorporating that ability to relax into the body because it's not like you can just say, oh, now I'm going to breathe for relaxation when you're, when you're already panicking, right? When you're already at a 10. Um, so I work with kids around that. Um, setting realistic expectations was really important in this, in this case. So talking a lot about expectations and the automatic thoughts that would go along with that. So what's... What's successful at school to you? Oh, all A's. Oh, okay, so all A's. Um, and so what would it feel like if you got an A minus? What would that be like to kind of try these ideas on? Um, you know, is it, you know, do you think that, you know, when you go to college and you're taking organic chemistry that you still want to get all A's? You know, what, does it ever change over time? You know, are we all always going to be suited to get so asking a lot of questions um and this young woman needed a lot of help um learning how to ask for help so communication skills assertiveness training and problem solving around that well i don't i don't really want to talk to my teacher like in the middle of class okay so when are some times that you could take those first steps when is the time of day that your teacher is accessible when is the room less chaotic when is it more private how, what words might you use to, you know, so, so doing a lot of questioning and problem solving in that area. And then, um, of course, working with the school. So, so she did end up getting a 504 plan. Um, she did modify her schedule. Um, she did need to do some exposure therapy to get back into school. Exposure and response prevention is the type of therapy that, that actually was um, <clears throat> originally used with patients who have OCD, and it's a fairly complicated approach to, to helping people kind of go up the fear ladder and extinguish um, their, the compulsions that they have related to their obsessive thinking. But the idea of exposure can be applied across many settings when it comes to anxiety. And so for her, getting re-exposed to school in a gradual way um, so that she could feel safer and more competent there. So it involved things like identifying her plan for when she felt anxious at school that would keep her in school. Who's the person that she's going to go to? How long is she going to be out of class? What is she going to do to manage how she's feeling and how is she going to get back to class? Managing the stress on her plate. We're going to drop this class this year. You can take it next year. Which meant she could have a supported study hall. At the very beginning, she had been so anxious about school that, that um, there was a weekend plan. So on the weekend, you're going to drive by the school the first day. And the second day, you're going to drive to the school, get out of the car, walk up to the front door, and get back in the car. And then on the third day when she was getting back into school, we had that trusted person come out and actually greet her at the door 
and bring her in. And, and it sort of um, continued on from there. And it's always nice to have a little bit of humor about, about the anxiety that we all feel. And also as a former owner of little dogs, it's okay for me to. <laughs> I had, uh, I used to have two long haired dachshunds. <laughs> so um, I have another short term therapy case example. Um, this is a 17 year old Caucasian male with a depressed mood Anhedonia, social anxiety, introverted temperament, academically capable, but difficulty with focus, time management, and task persistence, exhausted, exhausted, inactive, overweight, isolates, distracts, avoids, loses track of time, and school assignments often missing or late. Um, I think in the interest of time, I'll just move forward and we can leave the questions and comments to the end. Um, so, um, other things about this, this young man was that he was the youngest child, um, in, and had older, older parents who were, who were still married. The older siblings were quite a bit older and were living, you know, across country. And this was a lovely family. This was a family of, of people who cared so much about each other and, and worried a lot about each other. There was a lot of anxiety in the family. And um, the mom had, had a pretty serious illness um, a, a few years earlier that had been very significant. It was a life-threatening illness in, in the experience of this family. And um, this, this teenager really enjoyed spending a lot of time with his parents and being in the home. And, um, and they enjoyed him a lot too. And that in some ways was making it harder for him to like meet those developmental goals of becoming more independent. And I think, you know, in connection with what had happened to mom um, and how very kind these parents were and how it was really difficult for them to, okay, all right, you know, this is what you need to do today. Um, just very compassionate. Um, so this young man arrived with very significant clinical depression. Um, so in, when that is ever the case, um, there's a lot of education about suicidal ideation and safety, which was done with this patient. Also stigma, and um, this patient was, was very isolated, um, loved to play video games, very tech savvy, spent a lot of time on gaming, liked art, could hang out and um, paint, um, but very solitary activities, would lose track of time. So talked about the importance of social support, identified who those people might be, um, self-care, um, the auto automatic negative thoughts that were pretty significant, and also the potential role of medication to enhance these behavioral strategies, which was used. Um, so the treatment approach was behavioral activation. This is very commonly used to treat depression. Um, the first part of behavioral activation is to educate for the rationale for this treatment, um, explaining that avoidance and distraction work in the short term. And I think we, we probably all know this, right? We've, we've all done that. Um, but don't lead to long-term improvement in mood. So getting that right out there. And so then for this child, identifying the negative behaviors that reinforce the depression. This child was very able to do that, very insightful. Um, you know, doing it with a sense of compassion, sometimes even some humor, um, and then identifying positive replacement uh, behaviors that focus on values, interests, and the strengths that the patient already has to maximize buy-in. <clears throat> and then it's very important to set realistic goals and build upon those goals, short little realistic goals. Um, so, but when you're implementing the behavioral activation plan, <laughs> Um, it's really important to anticipate barriers and build solutions to do that front, front work about, hmm, what, you know, what, what might come up that would make this hard. So, for example, this patient um, decided that he wanted to start with increasing physical activity. So, oh, I could go, I could walk the jog every day. Okay, so, um, so this is a patient who needed to really think about, well, what, what time of day would you walk the jog? You know, let's let's think about that. Let's look at your schedule, 
and really think about time management and track of time, right? Um, well, can you think of anything that would get in the way of you following through with that plan of walking the dog? Well, if it rains, I don't know that I really want to go out and walk the dog. Oh, okay, so those days you wouldn't have that for your physical activity. Is there anything else that interests you? You know, I used to go to the gym, and so I, on the days that it rains, I'm going to make a plan to go to the gym. Okay, so, oh, okay, do you, do you have a gym that you've already been connected to that you, you want to go to again? How are you going to get there? And then increasing the social support. Who are you going to share your plan with, right, so that you can share your successes and get some encouragement when your plan isn't going the way that you hope it will go, right? And so, of course, in this case, um, for, this, for this child, the social support initially was from parents. And um, I'm happy to report that, that one thing that was great that happened with this child was that he very slowly um, expanded his social network. Um, he never had a huge social network, but he um, became more comfortable with a small group of people at school. And this became something that he continued to gain awareness of in terms of its importance in his life. I know we can relate to this one. <laughs> Um, so what I have done um, at the end of this um, slide presentation, I put together a summary of commonly used behavioral therapies. And I've realized that, that this isn't going to get to you through my slide presentation. So what I will do um, is I will make a PDF of this, if, and I'd be happy to, to share it with the practice. Some of the more commonly used behavioral therapies that are evidence-based, you know, a brief description. And you can find more information about all of these therapies very easily. And I'm certainly happy to talk with you about them in more detail at any point. There's some great um, programs for parent support that are evidence-based. Some of them have um, developmental content in them based upon the age of the child. Some of them are focused on certain challenging behaviors. Some are more attachment-based. Others are more behaviorally-based. But when you work with kids, it's really both, right? You don't have to have that fight about, is it attachment or is it, is it behavioral management? It's really both. References. Um, I thought it would be fun to kind of finish up by um, sharing with you three mindfulness activities that you could do with patients as young as two. There's the square, there's mountain breathing, and there's um, flowers and candles. So with the square, so with a, with a little two-year-old, two you, can, you can point the, point your finger here and say, okay, breathe in, two, three, four, breathe out, two, three, four, and just go around. Right. Uh, mountain breathing, the child puts his or her hand up, and it's... When you, when you go up the mountain, it's inhale, and down the mountain is exhale. Up the mountain, down the mountain. Up the mountain, down the mountain. Up the mountain, down the mountain. That's something that you can, you can teach very young children. And my personal favorite is flowers and candles. Um, so this is um, smell the flowers, blow out the candles. <laughs> and uh, little kids really love that one. I kind of like it too. <laughs> oh, there's that cool thing that I was going to do. <laughs> Actually, I have to thank Paige in the library for helping me learn how to do that. That was like, super cool. And this is probably what we all want for therapy, right? Some time to relax on the beach. Thank you. Questions for, for Susan? Every situation is unique, but are there some particular um, obvious signs which help you to determine which um, patients would benefit from brief, short-term, or long-term? Like, how do you sort that out in your initial phone or um, chart review? 
So I'm going to, I'm just going to repeat for our friends who are in our mini fellowship location. So the question is, how do you determine brief, briefly, brief versus short-term versus longer-term therapy from your initial assessment? Okay. That's a great question. And it's, it's kind of a complicated question because, um, of course, the, the motivation and concern of the patient is at the center of that conversation and, um, you know, really what they're looking for and, and any barriers that would come up that would make that more difficult for them to happen. And there may be um, barriers within the family itself, and we certainly know that there are loads of barriers in our system. Right. Um, so, um, so oftentimes, you know, we might think that for an anxious kid, yes, it would be great, you know, if, if you could, and to, we really do think of these shorter term therapies as very effective um, because we know that people are more likely to, to engage in them. There have been some studies that show that most people drop out after about eight sessions. And there was another study that showed that like 15% um, of the people who made appointments actually felt better just by making an appointment to address the issue. So there's, there is a lot of evidence that short-term therapies can be really helpful for people. And so in my role as behavioral health clinician, I'm always thinking about, okay, we're going to build on progress, right? Because, you know, so I might recommend, yes, short-term therapy, I'm going to refer you to counseling associates, and then they say, oh, it's going to take 14 to 18 weeks for me to get an appointment, right? So then maybe they're going to come and meet with me for four sessions, right? And, um, and we, can make, we can make some pretty decent progress in four sessions if, if that's something that they're motivated to do. Um, Long-term therapy, you know, sort of comes from the school of psychoanalysis. And um, then there certainly are other populations for whom long-term therapy is absolutely um, appropriate and indicated, like people who have extensive chronic trauma um, histories or people who have severe persistent mental illness with disordered thought um, definitely would, would need long-term therapies. Um, but many people can do well with short-term therapies. Um, and many people can make a lot of progress with just a brief intervention. Kathy, Dr. Shepkin. Um, Susan, thank you very much. As you know, you are an integral part of our team upstairs on 6th Allen. We couldn't do the work that we do without you. So first, thank you for all the work that you do for our families and patients up in Gap. Oh, thank you. It's invaluable. Um, one of the barriers that I face as a clinician is that I will suggest therapy. Like, at, like the stomachache, I promise, it's like... I could send you to Dr. Alamir, but I really, really think there's a lot of anxiety going on. Um, and I will suggest therapy, and they're like, yeah, I don't do therapy, or I don't like therapy. Or maybe they tried therapy when their kids were little and it involved play therapy. They're like, yeah, we just played with Legos. I'm not doing that again. Um, if, do you have some words of advice for us about how to suggest Therapy and have it be an accepted modality for treatment. Well, so my, repeat, you sure. summarize it nicely. Yeah. How, how suggestions on how to help families um, be comfortable with behavioral health therapy, uh, either in, in addition to or alternative to other options. Yeah. So in that situation, I really start with thinking about where this child and family is at, and so I'm going to be really brainstorming with them about other solutions that might feel more workable to them. So, for example, if it's anxiety, so tell me when you feel least anxious. What are you doing? Where are you? Um, tell me um, something that you is already working really well for you. Um, have you ever tried? Um, you know, uh, jumping rope. What do you notice about how you feel after you jump rope? So, so I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince them that they should go to therapy. Um, probably what I'm going to do instead is, is, is engage with them around something that would be helpful for them from their perspective about addressing their anxiety and then maybe directing them to another resource like, oh, okay, so, so maybe, you're, maybe you're interested in trying yoga. You know, I hope you'll give me a call and let me know how that goes for you. And then maybe direct them to another resource, a book, a handout, a workbook, um, or some kind of a, you know, maybe we'll just do some teaching in, in the office that day about progressive guided relaxation to improve sleep. So maybe they're going to walk out with one thing that day and, um, and maybe a card and, and, a, and a comment like, oh, okay. And if you want to, you know, let me know if you want to 
um, engage in therapy in the future if you want more information about this. Call me for any reason, any reason. So <laughs> that's typically my, my approach in that situation. Yeah. Uh, Dan Albert. Um, so I might have missed this, but um, musculoskeletal complaints are common in kids who have been abused. And I have difficulty eliciting a history of abuse. Can you help me? Yeah. Yes. Um, that is a really hard question. We have this traumatic event screening instrument um, that we can use um, in psychiatry. Um, sometimes I think just an opening question, like, you know, has anything ever happened to you that when it happened was really, really scary? Um, and if they say yes, oh, is that something that you still think about today? And if they say yes, oh, well, when you think about that, does it still feel really scary? Yeah. So, um, so sometimes just a very gentle, we have on our, on our screener, I don't, are you using the DART screen in, in specialty? Okay. So in, if, if you end up using that, that might be helpful to you. Um, because we do have some um, questions that get to that, like, um, have you ever been abused? Have you ever been hurt really badly? Um, have you ever had to carry a weapon? Have you ever lived in foster care? So that screener is really helpful to us because before the patient even walks through the room, we can dial down and we can look at those. And what we find is that teens generally will endorse. If we, if we give them these tablets, they will generally answer the questions. They're very comfortable with giving information electronically, right? Yes, 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 no, yes, yes. So, so we do find that they typically will respond. So something like that could also be helpful to you. Steve, Dr. Chapman. Well, first, let me just say, that was a great answer to his question. You are just such a valuable member of our team. <laughs> yeah. My question for you, because um, I know you just completed a circle of security parenting group, which is an evidence-based attachment-oriented um, uh, parenting curriculum, and that, that you did that here with Anya from the Family Place. Yes. I wonder if you would comment on how that went, and then the option of referring families to an evidence-based parenting curriculum, either here or at the Family Place or at TLC. Yes. The question's um, about evidence-based family uh, parenting curriculums. Circle of Security. Circle of Security. Actually, the, the last Circle of Security parenting group for this cohort is, is this morning at 10. Um, I love Circle of Security um, for all parents. Um, we, we tend to have parents in our group who have had some really challenging, traumatic um, circumstances happen with their children, like parents who have lost their children, custody of their children, parents who have struggled with substance use or or um, getting really activated in their parenting and, and being unavailable or hurtful to their children, that they're coming to Circle of Security. And um, so Circle of Security is about um, this idea that it's a model of care for parenting, um, that there are hands on the circle, and they're bigger, wiser, stronger kind, and the kid goes out to explore on the top of the circle, which is watch me grow, delight in me, support my explorations, help me. And they come in, fill my cup on the bottom of the circle, comfort me, protect me, delight in me, and organize my feelings, right? It's, it's such a straightforward model that parents across, you know, every demographic group can really understand this. I find my, my children are, are 24 and 26, and I still think about this. And um, so, um, a lot of folks who have had some really painful experiences in their relationships with their children um, learn this, this um, way of thinking about their interactions with their children with something called shark music. So when the child's starting to have like the big tantrum, you know, going crazy, the parent's shark music is getting going. And basically that's about what was, what was hard for you when you were a kid. So were your parents better on the top of the circle or the bottom of the circle? Okay, so my parents were definitely better on the top of the circle. Go explore, you know, and they were awesome like that. Sometimes on the bottom of the circle, 
not quite so much, right? So that if my kid is going to have a tantrum in the next generation, I'm going to be like, there's that shark music. Anyway, I hope that we can replicate the circle of security group. And um, I think that it'd be helpful for, for families across many, many demographics. So two wrap-ups. We have everyone's email because you've got the survey that you fill out. So we'll send the PDF that uh, um, Susan mentioned. The second thing is part of this for the system is that we have the benefit because this is a adult primary care model that's been successfully implemented across DH, but we're, we're the recipients of a generous donation so that we can bring the embedded behavioral health clinician model that you heard Steve and Kathy rave about here to all of our general pediatrics practices across the system. So part of this is so that you know how to interact with your behavioral cl health clinician in all of our locations. So um, one last thanks for Susan.